Welcome to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. On this episode, we talk with conservative commentator Ben Shapiro. Ben discusses his upbringing, how academia and society in general can make it difficult to be a young conservative, and makes a very engaging argument for the sanctity of life. Ben also discusses the dangers of intersectionality, which places group politics at the center of American life. And now, here's CAP President Kathy Herod. This is Kathy Herod with Engage Arizona and Center for Arizona Policy. My guest today is Ben Shapiro. Ben, as you know, is editor-in-chief of The Daily Wire, host of The Ben Shapiro Show, the top conservative broadcast in the nation. The New York Times has called Ben Shapiro a, quote, provocative gladiator, but my friend and National Review writer David French calls him a principled gladiator. Welcome, Ben, the principled gladiator to Engage Arizona. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Sure. So my first question I have to ask is, is it true, I read somewhere, that you dressed as John Adams for Halloween at the age of five? Yep, every year. <laughs> so, so. I have pictures of myself dressed up that way. My mom made the full-on red waistcoat. It was basically John Adams from uh, the movie 1776, the musical. Uh, so I had uh, the only difference is that I had a white wig because we couldn't find a black one. So what prompted your interest in public policy and history at a young age? I mean, was it your mom in the costume or what was it? I was, my, my dad was always very interested in history. As, as early as I can remember, I was very interested in history. The first chapter book I remember reading was a biography of Benjamin Franklin. So uh, I was always fascinated with American history. I was a big fan of the musical 1776 when I was very little. Uh, and I started reading a lot about Revolutionary War history. So I, I kind of grew up on, on that and then moved into broader studies of American history and beyond that. Uh, broader studies of world history. So you grew up in Hollywood, or at least the Los Angeles area, I believe, and then you graduated from UCLA and Harvard Law School, and you're still a strong conservative. Uh, So, you know, parents especially are asking, you know, how did that happen? You know, what what advice do you have to parents on, or how how did you stay conservative? Well, my parents inculcated values when when I was a kid, and, and so we were religious Jews. I still am religious. My wife is religious. Uh, and so our kids, obviously. And what that meant is that they were constantly instilling the value of hard work and the, the idea that merit would be rewarded. They were constantly talking about how America was an incredible country and all the freedoms that it provided. So I, I had those values drilled into me when I was a kid. And once you have the value of hard work and, and attitude drilled into you, it's difficult to get rid of that no matter what amount of propaganda is put in front of you, especially when you look the reality in the face that America is an incredibly free country. Well, once, once you see that America is incredibly free, it's difficult to unsee. I think the problem is the education system right now does its best to ensure that most students never see that. Instead, they see all the terrible things about America without stopping for a second to think about the background of ordinary life. The background of ordinary life is that you can go into any store anywhere and buy cheap products that are incredibly well-made, at better than any time in human history, that you're not going to have to worry about starvation in the United States. You're not going to have to worry about your child dying at, at childbirth in the United States. You're not going to have to worry uh, about disease wiping you off the planet at, at age 20 in the United States. The, the, the amount of prosperity, freedom, uh, and, and wealth overall in the United States is beyond parallel in human history. We tend to forget that because we're living in the middle of it. So if you're, if you're standing in the middle of a room that, that is where, where the light is on, you never, it's easy to pay attention to the wallpaper. It's easy to pay attention to all the objects in the room, but it's never going to occur to you, hey, the reason I can see all that stuff is because the light is on, because that would never occur to you, right? You've never seen it with the light off. 
Well said. Well, you've made some news in Arizona this spring, as we all know. Grand Canyon University had the Young Americans for Freedom chapter. It invited you to be a guest speaker. Then the university, I guess, disinvited you or didn't approve it. Then now you were invited again. Um, seems like that happens to you at least every now and then. Um, any backstory on Grand Canyon that you can share? Well, frankly, not, not one that I'm aware of. The only thing that I know is that the, the Young America's Foundation group on campus applied to have me, and the, the administration initially suggested they were willing to do it, and then I guess they got a little bit of backlash from a few of the students, and afraid of more backlash, they decided to cancel it. Now, that ended up engendering significantly more backlash than they would have gotten if they just allowed me to go in the first place. And eventually, after a couple of weeks, they backed down and they, and they re-allowed it. Yeah, I think one of the big problems is that the way that the press covers so many of the issues surrounding conservatism versus leftism in the United States is to suggest that conservatives are by nature nasty, rude, uh, bad people, racist, sexist, bigot, homophobes. And so the widespread perception for people who have never actually engaged with my content is that I'm all the same slurs that Democrats and, and folks in the media are fond of calling Republicans. And then once you actually engage with my content, you see that none of that is true. But it's easier for administrators to simply buy into the prevailing narrative than it is for them to do their own research. And it's only after they do their research they realize that, you know, it's not actually going to be that bad. I speak at dozens of college campuses every year. We never have a single problem with students. Any student who asks a question is treated respectfully. We have a rule at my lectures, which is that if you want to ask a question and you disagree, you go to the front of the line. You're always treated with dignity. Uh, and yet we're still met with this sort of bizarre response. And frankly, I find it completely bewildering. I, I, I still do not understand why, why I'm such a rabid response. Yeah, I agree. Well, and obviously you're a young conservative. You're speaking to all ages. You're deeply engaged on the divisive issues in our culture. And what we're hearing from millennials or you know that age group all the time is, you know, how do you um, what advice for them on the young adults that are struggling to be labeled as a conservative in the current political climate and how to stand their ground? Well, I think that you can stand your ground based on principle. I think that it's good to debate with folks. I think it's good to discuss with folks. It makes your viewpoint stronger, or maybe you change your ideas, but you're going to be forced to defend yourself. I think all of that is good and makes you stronger. The one thing that I would say to young conservatives, and I always have, is you have to be practical in how you engage in the debate. So if engaging in the debate means that you are going to write something that gets you a D on a paper, and that paper is going to decide your grade in the class, and that grade in the class is going to decide whether you're able to go to the business school that you want or the law school that you want, is that really worth it? Is it really, is, is it a, do you have to do a cost-benefit analysis, unfortunately? Now, I still think that the vast majority of professors are willing to hear opposing viewpoints. I think that an enormous number of professors actually value it, but you do have to make an actual assessment of risk and reward, and you're the only one who can do it. You're the person in the situation. I'm really looking forward to reading your new book, um, The Right Side of History, How Reason and Moral Purpose Made the West Great. Is that what we need to turn this culture around, is uh, go back to reason and moral purpose? Uh, I really think so. I mean, the book is basically a contention that the, the foundations of the West were laid in Jerusalem and Athens. They were laid in Judeo-Christian morality and revelation, and they were laid in Greek reason, and the idea that we can apply reason to the world and come up not only with rules for behavior, but there is such a thing as objective truth that we ought to pursue in order to make our lives better. The, the combination of reason and revelation, the tension between the two, has created pretty much everything good in the modern world, from science to basic human rights. All of this stuff did not exist in any other culture, and to forget our roots is to return to the pagan roots that lay even beneath those, and those pagan roots are really ugly. Well, no. 
I think this was a, maybe on the book jacket that the quote that America has a God-shaped hole in its heart and we shouldn't fill it with politics and hate. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is that we used to have certain things in common in the United States, and a lot of those things are based on the idea that the world was created with a moral purpose to it, that human beings are innately valuable, that each human being is made in the image of God, that we all have the capacity for creativity and free will, and that we were built with the capacity for reason as well, and that we ought to use that capacity for reason as cultivated by Greek thought in order to come up with the best solutions to pressing problems in accordance with, with actual virtue. Uh in Arizona, like throughout the country, we're seeing a number of instances up close about outright religious bigotry, whether it's in court cases, whether it's in legislative bills that we're having to fight in Arizona. You had a recent column where you talked about religious bigotry going mainstream. And I thought this was fascinating in how, you know, that those who abide by traditional Judeo-Christian notions of sin, like we do, how we're targeted for destruction and that we're not to have a role in, in public discourse. How do we respond to that? Uh, I mean, I think the only way to respond to that is by saying that we, like every other American, ha have the right to our views of what is sin and what is good. And as long as we are not using the power of the government to impose our own viewpoints, we are not the tyrants in the situation. The people who are using the power of the government to cram down on us viewpoints with which we do not agree, who are attempting to drive people out of their churches, who are attempting to shame them into not joining in their religious community, those people are doing enormous damage to the social fabric, not only the internal social fabric of, of churches and religious communities, but the social fabric between church communities and non-church-going communities. People who, who are not interested in the Judeo-Christian ethic still need to recognize that the baseline ethics in which they believe were built atop a foundation of Judeo-Christian ethics. They, that doesn't mean you have to go to church, but it does mean that you have to recognize the innate value of Judeo-Christian religion that helped build the West. Uh, when you spoke at the March for Life, January 2019, when you recorded your did your podcast live, I was um, privileged to be right there at the stage um, watching all of it and heard your arguments. When you're talking to a pro-choice person, what, what's your best argument um, for the pro-life cause? I mean, the, the pro-life argument is really very simple. Either this is a human life with value or it is not a human life with value. If it's not a human life with value, then it is just a polyp, and you can remove it at any time and for any reason. If, however, this is a human life because human life begins at consumption, you don't even have to make the argument that this is a baby. I think this is where the left tries to trip people up, is they try to say, well, a, a fetus is not a baby or an embryo is not a baby. I don't think you even have to make the argument that an embryo is a baby. An embryo is a human life by definition. That means that it has value, and that value lies above your convenience. And then the notion that you ought to be able to snuff out a human life simply by defining it away or pretending that it's, it's a cluster of meaningless cells is intellectual dishonesty of the highest order. You at least have to make a, a, co a logically coherent argument for why the value of the human life that is growing in the womb does not match up to other competing values that folks on the left supposedly hold. Um, in Arizona, of course, I'm sure you're aware, we have a lot of California people, a lot of your home state people moving into our state. So we're saying a lot, don't California, my Arizona. Um, the push to turn Arizona blue is in full force. Um, advice um, to those that are working and praying to keep Arizona free and thriving with conservative principles, how do we stop Arizona from becoming the next California? Well, I mean, I think, frankly, that, that what, what the statistics tend to show, and it's quite fascinating, is that in Texas, to take another state that is being inundated with Californians, 
expatriates from other states who are moving to Texas continue to vote Republican. They're actually moving from the states they come from to Texas because they don't want to be in California anymore. It's the younger generation that's being lost, and it's that young generation that we ought to be spending virtually all of our time on, people who are being inculcated in leftist values by a media that believes in them, by an academic institution that, that agrees with leftist values. The, the battle is going to take place among the 20-year-olds. It's not going to take place among the 50-year-old expatriates from California who are simply looking to start a business in Arizona or Texas. Well, and that's why Center for Arizona Policy wanted you to come and, and have our evening with you in April of 2019 because just the, the how you speak to the younger audiences. And so for those of us who are the um, the 50- and 60-year-olds, um, learn more and, and understand as much as we can about how to communicate to the younger generations and, and how to understand, uh, even to, to bring up the president, to bring up President Trump, I see such a divide between um, say, a, a very conservative, uh, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a businessman, whoever it might be, and one that maybe, you know, is really turned off by the rhetoric that the president has. Speak to that divide that we see among conservatives. Sure. I think a lot of older conservatives, because they feel defined in their lives and in their character, they don't feel threatened by President Trump's rhetoric. They say, President Trump says a lot of stuff. Who cares? He's doing a bunch of stuff that I like, and every so often he says something I really like. Young people are still operating in a world where they're trying to define who they are, not only for themselves, but among their friends. And in your peer group, if you are seen as the person who's defending whatever dumb thing Trump tweeted today, that's not likely to make you popular with your peer group or to make you feel good about yourself. The thing about being a Ronald Reagan defender in 1984 as a young person is you could say, I like that guy and I'm proud to like that guy. It's a lot harder to do that for young people and President Trump, which is why what I've said to young people is that you know, President Trump is a man with some serious character flaws, like real serious character flaws that have real ramifications for American politics. Also, he does a lot of good stuff. Conservatism is not Trump. Trump is not conservatism. When he does something that's good, we ought to cheer it. When he does something that's bad, we ought to criticize it. And you don't have to go down the line and, and cheer everything he does in, simply in order, to, in order to defend him. The fact is that Trump is fully capable of defending himself. Young people resonate to that message because they don't want to be held responsible for comments that they find gross. Older people, basically, I think, in the, in the Republican Party, they don't care. They figure the left is going to browbeat you anyway. They're going to club you to death anyway. So what does it matter if you're defending Trump's dumb tweet or not? So the, older people just are less bothered by Trump's manner and pudding. And that's a, that, that is a real problem that, that the Republican Party is going to have to actually contemplate going into 2020. Um, we hear the term intersectionality tossed around a lot in public debate and in some of the, the think tank type of magazines. What is intersectionality, and what should people understand about it? Sure. So there's a term coined by a woman named Kimberly Crenshaw. who's a professor, I believe, at the University of California. And the original concept of intersectionality is essentially that we all have experiences as members of groups. So I'm a Jewish person. That means that my experience as a Jewish person is different than your experience as a Christian. Your experience as a woman is different than my experience as a man. Women have a different general experience than men do. Intersectionality is the idea that if you take all of my various group identities and you find the intersection, that this will describe my personal life in some meaningful way. So if you are a Christian woman of color, then that is three different identities, and the intersection of those identities determines your experience in the United States. The problem with that argument is that your experience in the United States is largely not predicated on your membership in a group. The idea that every person who is black in the United States is treated vastly differently than every person who is white is simply not true. And the idea that every black woman is treated worse than every black man, or that on average black women are treated worse than black men, that's not true either. The, the whole goal 
of American politics is to place the individual at the center of political life. The whole goal of intersectionality is to place group politics at the center of American life. And that's extraordinarily dangerous. That, that urges a return to tribalism because what starts to happen is people start to say, my opinion should matter more because I am more victimized. If I am a member of more victim groups, then I have more credibility to speak to issues of inequality than you do. Because the left also makes a very simple move. They say that every disparity is discrimination. So if there's one group doing better than another group, that's not because individuals within one group are making different decisions than individuals in the other group. It's because of discrimination. It's because there's a power hierarchy. So if you combine those two ideas, that there are power hierarchies between groups and that every group has a different experience in the United States, what this leads to is the idea that the only way to overcome inequality is to use group politics in order to tear down these power hierarchies themselves. That's extraordinarily tribal. It cuts against the notions of individual justice and freedom upon which the country is based. Intersectionality is really dangerous stuff. Well said. I think this was following the, some of the controversies with a Virginia governor. You wrote a column about a world without forgiveness and talked about that you know, what, what seems to be happening is that the only people that can engage in public life are those that have no shame or that are entirely pure. And of course, as you said, no one is entirely pure. And then I love this quote because I think it s speaks so much to what we need to be hearing. A world with no mercy or grace is an ugly world indeed. And we're building that world for ourselves brick by brick. So we talk about, you know, when you mentioned no mercy or grace and how you balance mercy and, mercy and grace with truth, and I know one of your, like your pinned tweet is that facts don't care about your feelings. So how do you square balancing mercy and grace with truth and, you know, comment like facts don't care about your feelings? I think you can still be merciful with the truth. And I think one of the biggest problems is that people have ditched truth in favor of non-mercy. So what I mean by that is that let's look at people in the most favorable possible light or the most honest possible light. Let's take Ralph Northam as an example, because it was in that context that I wrote this column. So in 1985, there's a picture in Ralph Northam's medical yearbook in which there's a man in blackface and a man in a KKK costume. He claims neither of them is him. We'll take that for what it is. Maybe it's a lie. Maybe it's true. It doesn't really matter. The bottom line is he spent the next 30 years not being a racist. And there are, really, there are really no contentions that he has behaved in a racist fashion for three decades. So are we going to wreck his life over a stupid racist decision that he made in 1985? Or are we going to begin to look at the vast corpus of people's lives and then make a factual determination as to whether the person is in fact a racist or not? And on that basis, we can, I think, attribute mercy because the fact is that we, are, we now live in a situation where people are digging up people's old tweets and old Facebook posts and old yearbooks on a regular basis. And that leaves us with a couple of choices. One is that we can expect people to preemptively come out and disown their old behavior, which is mostly going to apply to politicians. That's sort of the Barack Obama approach to his cocaine use in high school. I did a little blow in high school, so you should leave me alone now. Okay, fair enough. And then there's approach number two, which is, I, I'm really embarrassed by this. I hope nobody remembers it because I wish I hadn't done it. And then it arises and you say, well, I'm sorry that happened. I was embarrassed by it. Obviously, I've spent my entire life not doing that. And then there's approach number three, which is to double down on it. Because we have no grace and no mercy, we have decided to get rid of approach two. So it is no longer possible to just try and say, listen, I wish that that had been left behind. I'm really embarrassed by it. I apologize now because we say, well, why didn't you apologize before? Why didn't you preemptively apologize? And in some cases... Even preemptively apologizing isn't enough. So if you're Mark Herring, the attorney general of Virginia, and you come out and say, listen, preemptively, I dressed up in blackface for a rapper's costume in 1980. And then, then people come down on you anyway, and they say, well, you shouldn't have done that. Well, if we're living in a world where 
we can't take the vast corpus of facts about your life and then make a decision about you as a person. Instead, we're supposed to take one fact from your life and then use that as a stand-in for the rest of your life. That is both non-factual and non-merciful. Absolutely. Well, Ben Shapiro, I thank you, thank you for spending time with us um, to record and engage Arizona podcast in Arizona. We're very much looking forward to seeing you on April 9th. We are nearing a sellout uh, more than a month out. And so we'll have a great evening with Ben Shapiro on April 9th at the Sheridan downtown in Phoenix. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye.